Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature digital contact lenses and locusts like it hot. But first up, here's the news with Dr. Patrick Ruby. First up, we have an article from ABC Science. Left-handed boxers are better competitors. Two mathematicians, Mark Panaggio and Dr. Daniel Abrams, conducted research into making mathematical models to predict left-handedness in sport. About 10% of people are left-handed. This percentage of left-handers might be due to the need for competition and the need for cooperation causing competing pressure on sportsmen. According to the mathematical model, the need for cooperation makes it more likely to be unidextrous, or one-handed. The need to be competitive makes it more likely to have a mix of right-handed and left-handed people. The model assumes sports like boxing would select for a higher amount of left-handedness because of the need for a competitive edge whereas golf selects for less left-handers because of the limited resources available. The researchers looked at eight different sports and found their model was pretty close to the real-life proportions. Golf and American football had the least number of left-handers. 25% of elite boxers are left-handed, and 40% of high-level baseballers are also left-handed. The results have been published in the journal of the Royal Society Interface. Zebrafish may save hearts in an article from New Scientist. Research into zebrafish cardiac muscle could help us treat heart diseases. Vikas Gupta and colleagues of Duke University, North Carolina, USA have been researching stem cells from zebrafish hearts. They found that the hearts are formed from eight stem cells, embryonically, where one or two dominate the growth of the heart. The development of the heart was tracked with colour labelling. This way, the progeny of the stem cells could be tracked as they divided and grew. The cells enveloped the ventricle in a wave-like structure, a very different growth pattern to what was expected previously. This growth pattern might help scientists to help damaged or failing hearts to grow new muscle. The research was published in Nature. And finally, hikers are the new scientists. In an article from New Scientist, Greg Trainish, a wildlife biologist, founded an organisation known as Adventurers and Scientists for Conservation in 2010. It's an organisation that works similar to a matchmaking service for scientists and adventurers, such as hikers, skiers, climbers and bikers. The adventure athletes collect data while they're out adventuring, providing scientific community with data they wouldn't previously have access to because of the extreme locations these adventurers are going to. 
So far, the adventurers are doing it for altruistic reasons, to provide something back to the community. Previous linkages have included ecologists studying ice worms and ski mountaineers, Himalayan hikers, and ecologists studying bar-headed geese. Volunteers are needed for monitoring roadkill, high-altitude rock collections at the moment. If you feel like volunteering, contact us at Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs> oh, would you volunteer for any of that stuff, um, Ian? Well, I'm not much of an adventurer at the moment myself, but what about collecting data every day as a citizen scientist? Hmm. What sort of data could you collect every day, I suppose? I wonder. You could collect... Well, people's... uh, Right now, there's the whole thing about the quantified self, that people are getting their smartphones to collect their heart rate and their breathing, and how many kilometres they run, and for how long they do things. I do that myself, actually. I've got a little app on my iPhone which tells me, uh, basically tells me my running rate and tells me my distance that I've run in my training for the Sydney Morning Herald Half Marathon in a couple of weeks, which is really scaring me at the moment. But it's a really useful app to have. I find it really, um, just really interesting to see how you're ticking along. And it's interesting to think that... We as everyday citizens could be collecting data, I suppose, for the greater good of the scientific community at at some point. Well, that's right. I think if the apps are designed to collect the data that the scientists are looking for and submit it anonymously, then they've got a great wealth of statistical information about all sorts of things. And I think it might be useful for research. Yeah, it could be good. Although I don't think my phone would have worked that well on my recent trek to um, Cradle, or my recent trek on the Overland track in Tasmania. I've just come back from a six-day hike, which was absolutely awesome, but thoroughly exhausting, uh, from Cradle Mountain to Lake Sinclair in Tasmania. Um, and I had absolutely no reception for the whole of my time there. So I don't think any apps on my phone would have been very good at collecting data. Oh, but they would because your phone is a computer. A computer does not have to be connected to a network all the time to work. So it could have had all its sensors going and collect all the data about what you're doing and save it up and send it the next time you've got reception. Oh, fantastic. So next time I get the urge to go on one of these treks, I should consult my local researcher to see if there's anything they need me to collect for them. I think it'd be a really good project. Can you imagine students putting together apps for collection of data for research? Like, it could be a win-win, because otherwise someone's got to develop the apps, and that takes time and money normally, unless you're a student who's doing it to learn to write the apps. And it could all, there could be a lot of people helping each other out here, and we all benefit. Awesome.
is a story of the future, but not the very distant future. It is a story that might have taken place the day after tomorrow. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past. As far back as the first man on Earth to gaze at the stars and wonder if someday, somehow, he might travel to them. Travel through space. Sometimes mishaps occurred and men paid for them with their lives. But the work went on. Last week, I reported on wearable camera internet glasses from cheap video sunglasses to Google's Project Glass. This week, I look at contact lenses that let you see a digital display on top of the real world. You could soon have superhuman vision thanks to the new eye-optic contact lenses. Well, sort of. The new eye-optic contact lenses from InnoVega will use clever optics that allow your eyes to focus on both the image and the landscape in front of you at the same time. Without this help, human eyes can normally only focus on one distance at a time. The contact lenses work by using two filters. The outer filter of the contact lens, after gathering light from surroundings, sends it to your pupil's rim. The central filter of the lens sends the light coming from your smartphone to the middle of your pupil. This allows both images to be fully focused by your eyes without any blurriness, as if the two different images came from the same distance. How does the central filter get the digital image from your mobile device? The image is projected from a pair of glasses with a projector on each earpiece. The light bounces off the lens of the glasses and into your eye through the contact lens with its two focusing filters. That's right, this system requires you to wear glasses and contact lenses at the same time to get the magical ability to see projected information on top of the real world without having to change your focus and fall into a ditch or run into a traffic light. In a press release from InnoVega, they say that the US military research group, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, have placed a large order for the prototype iOptic system for soldiers. DARPA will use the display in its new soldier-centric imaging via computational cameras, or SCENIC, program. Previously, the US used a bulkier rig called the Future Combat System. This was killed in 2009 because of reliability and security issues with its wireless network. The eyepiece in the Future Combat System was an opaque helmet-mounted module which troops would have to focus on with one eye while trying to look out for danger with the other eye. In live combat tests in Afghanistan, most troops ditched the video relying on squad leaders and field officers, who did use the monitors, to pass along the information they needed. Perhaps it was just too much extra work to switch between each eye. Other multifocal contact lenses have had the problem of the two images not being as clear and detailed as single-focus lenses. Motion sickness is another concern. InnoVega showed off its system at the Consumer Electronics Show for 2012. They say that their technology allows glasses and lens wearers to view content from your mobile device while still looking at the scenery around you. 
This addresses a large criticism of Google's Project Glass, heads-up display spectacles, that people would be switching focus between display and the real world and have an accident, or at best, develop a headache and tired eyes. Innovega say its iOptic megapixel display could connect to smartphones, portable game devices and media players for entertainment and augmented reality applications. The contact lenses and glasses system boasts a virtual screen size equivalent to a giant 6-metre television, viewed at a distance of 3 metres. DARPA expects to have their military version working in 2014, and civilians can expect the iOptic glasses and contact lenses on the market also by 2014. It was only a few months ago in November 2011 that the University of Washington released information about its single-pixel wireless contact lens display. No glasses would be needed, but they will need to scale it from one LED up a little. The wireless signal also provides the power. To allow the wearer to focus on the display, the contact lens has a Fresnel lens making the image appear at a distance. The first health and safety test subject was a rabbit, and the power source needed to be within two centimetres of the cyber bunny's eyes. Another wearable wireless network camera announced this week is worn on your finger as a ring, not on your face. The MIT Media Lab iRing is a camera mounted on a ring with a side trigger to take still photos and beam them by Bluetooth to your phone for identification. MIT see the iRing as an aid for people with vision impairment and children still learning to read. You point your finger at what you want to identify, hit the thumb trigger, and your phone app reads the translated text out loud to you. Of course, you could simply capture documents and images for looking at later, like a spy. A really obvious spy, with a big camera mounted on their finger. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. A way of skeptically interrogating the universe are not able to ask skeptical questions, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com and www.2SCR.com. Julianne Popple cornered her friend and former colleague, Dr Fiona Clissold of the University of Sydney, to talk about the hot topic of temperature and metabolism in insects. I want to start by asking you, what is the effect of temperature on metabolism in insects? With temperature, with increasing temperature, an insect or any organism's metabolic rate increases, which means it needs more energy, you use more oxygen, you need more energy to fuel basic life um, activities. Insects are ectotherms. Can you explain exactly what is an ectotherm? An ectotherm is any organism that takes its heat from the outside. Um, Ecto meaning outer, outside yourself. Uh, Insects, because of their small size, lose a lot of heat across their border. So it wouldn't be energy efficient for them to actually produce their own energy like we do using metabolism. They just wouldn't be able to get enough food to fuel that. So insects rely on temperature on microclimates a lot to find a temperature 
that they can operate at. And you'll see a lot of insects are very sluggish in the morning when it's cold. They take a while to warm up. And you're probably most familiar with this when we think about snakes. They're sluggish when they're cold. But then as you know, they'll be on a hot rock, they'll bask, they'll use whatever external heat source they can find to warm themselves up. And they operate best at usually at the same temperatures we do, around 38 degrees. With insects, do their energy needs change according to temperature? Well, yes, because when it's hotter, when they're hotter, their metabolic rate's higher, they need more energy or fuel to be able to go about life's activities. But also we know with temperature, different processes change too. So, for example, with locusts that I study, at 38 degrees, the locusts will develop fastest. But at 32 degrees, they'll develop to the same size, but they just take much longer to get there and they need less fuel to do this. Although they'll grow to the same size at 32 and 38, at 38 degrees, they're very inefficient at converting any energy that they absorb to biomass. And we did an experiment, because you know a logical extension of this work is that if you're restricted in your energy intake, you could use temperature to ameliorate the effects of not being able to get food, And what we showed was locusts that were well fed would eat a meal and always go and sit at 38 degrees. But if they missed a meal, they would turn around, walk on our thermal gradient plates and sit at 32 degrees. We also showed that this had an effect over a longer time frame, that if we restricted nutrient intake via starvation, then they would progressively lower their body temperatures or where they prefer to sit on our thermal gradient plates so that they progressively chose lower and lower temperatures. So an insect can, it's able to determine up to about 0.3 degrees difference in the environment and it can know its own internal state and be able to say, okay, this is where I, what temperature I need to sit at to make sure I don't end up being small. So although they'll sacrifice development rates by not being at 38 degrees, they want to maintain body size. And this is quite important in plaguing dynamics that animals maintain both the size they're at, but also they want to aim to also maximize their development rate if they can. So why is it important in terms of plaguing dynamics for them to maintain their size? Uh, Mostly because when they're maintaining their size, they're getting an optimal ratio of nutrients. And we know that that generally translates to maximum egg numbers if they're not getting the right enough energy or the right not the right balance of nutrients then they tend to end up smaller develop more slowly and they haven't got the resources to put into allocate uh, to allocate to reproduction therefore not so many babies therefore not so messy windscreen <laughs> is there also a potential of because i know locusts are cannibalistic if you're smaller are you more likely to get eaten um, it's very hard to argue this in population dynamics because if you're smaller, your, your brothers and sisters are going to be smaller. And it also depends on what nutrients you're lacking. There may be a potential potentiality to eat more when you are starving. And this is seen in quite a few insects, actually, especially in temporary wetlands as they start drying up. It's been well documented that a lot of insects and a lot of these animals, organisms that inhabit these temporary wetlands will just eat each other to try and get to a stage where they can then sit out the the next dry season. 
So we've talked before on diffusion with Professor Steve Simpson about the protein leverage hypothesis. Does temperature affect their propensity to balance protein in their diet? What we've shown is with temperature that they still, regardless of temperature, they still um, require the same ratio of protein to carbohydrate. However, what we've just found out now that's just absolutely blown us away is that they can eat grasses and sit at different temperatures and get a different ratio of protein or carbohydrate out of it. For our locusts, we found when they ate kangaroo grass, which is very common throughout Australia, um, known as Themida triandra, that when they eat it at 32 degrees, if we confine them onto these grasses at 32 degrees, they get more carbohydrate than protein per mouthful, per meal out of it. But when they're at 38 degrees, they get a higher protein meal. And you know, something I'd love to be able to do is eat a donut and not absorb those carbs or fat, just get that high Atkins diet. Unfortunately, I don't think it works the same way for us. So if we eat a donut in a sauna, it's not gonna have quite the same effect? I don't know, but as a scientist, I really think we should test this with quite a few replications. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what do you think is the next step in your work? Well, this work has major implications for host plant choice dynamics. If a locust or an insect is going to choose a plant, is it choosing that plant based on the temperature, its temperature requirements, because remembering it wants to balance both its, maximise its rate of development, but also its growth rate. And previously, people have tend to look at temperature and nutrition quite independently, thinking that animals are doing this, you know, they eat and then they move. But what we're beginning to look at now is, is host choice determined by both temperature and plant interactions, because we found with Themida, they get this difference in protein carbohydrate ratio with temperature but other grasses they don't it just differs in the rate they can get nutrients out of it so there's this very specific species by temperature interactions so we're now investigating that it also has implications for body size dynamics you know we get grasshoppers that range from being almost a gram to those that are only 100 milligrams you know much much smaller small animals heat and cool up much faster they're also because they have smaller mouth parts are able to get more nutrients out of plants anyway and we're now looking at interactions between body size host range dynamics and temperature but also it has implications for climate warming are we going to use lose microhabitats is are some plants going to become preferred habitat that wasn't before will this change grassland dynamics will it alter plaguing dynamics And these are things that we just don't know the answers to yet. Well, it's already pretty amazing that an animal with such, I would presume, limited intelligence is able to regulate its uh, nutritional intake in such a way. Well, we performed an experiment and showed that they actually learned to associate temperature, um, plant that they were eating, and their internal nutritional state. So we took our locust, we confined it to diets that made them protein deprived or carbohydrate deprived. We then offered them the themida and then gave them a choice of temperatures. And at first they were pretty good. They naturally wanted to select that 38 degrees where they maximized rates of development. But after two days of training that was associating um, temperature and the nutrition they got from eating themida, when we tried them again, they got much better at selecting 32 degrees. This is well known that insects and many, many animals with quite limited intelligence are able to associate a color or an odor 
to address a particular nutrient imbalance. Most of this work's been done with bees where you can teach them to know where protein is or carbohydrate is depending on their needs. And we know with grasshoppers that they'll redress nutritional imbalances after three hours. Unlike us as humans, it takes us about two days. But insects really want to redress these imbalances straight away. They won't eat pies, chips, beer, beer, beer. (laughs) They go and have that protein meal far sooner. Not so bad being an insect then. That was Dr Fiona Clissold talking about insect nutrition and metabolism in relation to temperature. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio, we need... If you'd like to be on radio, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live in Sydney, you can join us in the 2SCR studios. Or, if you're not, then perhaps you could record a story and send it to us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Patrick Ruby and Julianne Popple. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL... The first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.